up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode number 159. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. What's up, dude? Not too much. Ready to talk about some Lord of the Rings? Let's do it. Before we do, of course, our usual housekeeping. If you're not already in the Discord, do check that out. It's the best place to be to chat all things MTG. Now all things Lord of the Rings, apparently. And, uh, you know, <laughs> chat with us and the rest of the Traficionado community. So do check that out. The link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft pod. Huge, huge thanks to each and every one of you who continue to support us every week. We really do appreciate you guys. Perks over there include things like our Draft Doctor series, show notes, stickers, our pre-show recordings, and our Draft Chaff Hero cards signed by us and sent to you. Again, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash draft pod. All right, on to our cracker draft type thing. Ben, why don't you walk us through this pack? This is actually a pack from one of my drafts, but it is a pack one pick one, and this is usually your segment. So why don't we why don't you walk us through the pack? <laughs> sure. Let's start with the comments. Uh, we got a great haul at the Citadel. This is the thing that kind of lets you splash legends. I like it. You know, sometimes you'll wind up picking up like a Faramir or something that you really want to jam into your green white deck. Yeah, you can play like one or two of these and you're set. So woe is Pathfinder. I really like this one. This is the green mana dork. It also kind of enables these uh, splashy combinations. This one is also a mana dork with a late game pump ability. Great. Love it. Took Reaper. No, I don't really care about this card. The two mana two one dies into a ring tempt. I've never found this card to be worth playing. Same with Soldier of the Grey Host. Just terrible rate. Four mana two two. Flyer, Flash. Nah. Uh, there's the Shire Scarecrow. Also a little bit too far below rate for me. This just does nothing. <laughs> Is this something that you're even willing to play in decks that are like you end up with some really cool maybe wedge or like three colors or potentially even four color splash and you just have no ways to splash or do you just cut those colors instead of playing this? I would rather cut the colors. I mean, if I couldn't pick up the Woes Pathfinders or Great Halls that I needed or I mean, there's other ways to do it. What about the uh, Wizards Rockets or uh, honestly that the Cyclers help a lot too. I, I would have preferred to just have any of those. I would not play the Shire Scarecrow or a Splash that makes me want the Shire Scarecrow. It's just, yeah. I mean, you can't play O3s with no abilities. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, that's where my head was at. Just double checking that I <laughs> have an, a good enough grasp on the format. Yeah. Uh, there's a Pelagir Survivor. I like this one a little more. This is one of the blue one, three taps to add one mount of any color for instance and sorceries. And then it has an activated mill ability. Uh, there's some decks that can have like 15, 16, 17 instants and sorceries in them. Because there's a lot of uh, instants and sorceries that make creatures or a mass in some way. So uh, it's not weird if this is one of your only like three or four creatures in the deck and maybe you're splashing, maybe you're blue-black and you're splashing a flame of Anor or something. Then this thing helps you get there. There's also a Lorien Revealed. Love this one. This is the blue island cycler, the five out of draw three. Yeah, casting this in the mid to late game where you and your opponent are both kind of at parity. You're both like waiting to see who breaks forward a... Uh, a little faster than the other one. And then one of you just goes Lorien Revealed. It's like, oh man, how are you supposed to come back from that? Yeah, and this format does seem very friendly to those who are able to draw cards. I think, Ben, you've mentioned that a few times in our previous episodes, but if you have really any way to generate card advantage over your opponent, you're in a pretty solid seat in this format. Yep. Now, Lembus doesn't count as card advantage. I actually don't like it that much. It seems like it could be a bit more of a role player, but these like blue white draw two decks don't really care about this and the scry decks certainly have better ways of doing it that are more repeatable so uh i haven't actually put lembus into a deck sad funny card but uh no i'm kind of off the lembus plan 
There's Fires of Orthanc. That's the uh, four mana, destroy a target artifact or land. Creatures that fly and can't block this turn. Similar to these effects, I'll side them in if I'm playing like a, a matchup that I think the board could stall. Or if I'm worried that if I'm, I, I mean, I'd have to be playing an aggressive red deck for, to want this. If I'm worried I have an opponent that has like generous Ents or something, uh, and they're going to slam those, attempt to stabilize, then sometimes there's a one-turn window where you just need to get in for a million. <laughs> And uh, this can do that, so I'll take one of these for the sideboard. Yeah, never really looking to main deck this. And even the, this, I mean, for four mana, this effect is kind of expensive. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really remember seeing a card like this at four mana that was ever very effective. So definitely a sideboard card that I'm thinking of when I'm playing traditional, but not something I'm excited to even side in when I need it. Like, I feel really bad about having to do that. Yeah, I will say once or twice, after having sided it in, uh, I ended up using it to like, snipe my opponent's splash color or one of their great halls at the citadel or something like that people can get a little uh overly creative with some of their splashing in this format i've seen people try to cast aragorn and it just doesn't really doesn't really work out (laughs) last common here is probably the best one so far it's dunlin crabane the three mana one one flyer mass two really really good i'd probably take it out of the commons yeah, so far I don't think it's very close. I would say Woe's Pathfinder is probably next best in the pack and the next best card that I'm like looking to to pick up at that point. But um, Crabane has felt very good, so definitely interested in taking that over anything else in this pack so far. If Crabane wasn't in the pack, I'd probably take the Lorraine Revealed and then the Woe's Pathfinder. Mm, okay. Uncommon. here we've got Shortcut to Mushrooms. Uh, I recently learned that was actually... Uh, one of the chapter titles in one of the Lord of the Rings books. That's pretty funny. Uh, apparently, there's a bunch of cards in the set named after chapter titles. Uh, this one. Can't tell sadly, if I love that or if that just feels lazy. <laughs> <laughs> this one is, uh, well, uh, you don't have to put this in your deck, so you don't really have to worry about it. Um, I haven't found, I mean, this is, this kind of looks like uh, how some of those clue payoffs, like Olvenwald Mysteries, looked. Uh, like a thing that sits there and just generates you tons of value. The difference is that clues drew you cards, so they kept drawing into more gas. Uh, Fu doesn't do that, so th- this one's a miss. Next is Mirror of Galadriel. That's the two mana. You can pay five, tap it, scry one, draw one, which is a good effect, and it costs one less for each legendary creature you control. Uh, I-, I played this a lot more in the beginning of the format. I would still play it in any deck with five plus legends or you know, a million ways to get tempted. But even then you're only getting like one extra legend per, you know, even if you have a bunch of tempting stuff, because, you know, you're not tempting multiple legends out. Uh, I I would want a a good number of legends before I look at this. But when you have it, it can do good work, especially in these like, sometimes you get like a Bant scry pile, like uh, people are playing like the Prince Imrahil, the uh, white blue, whenever you draw your second card, make a one one. And then they're also playing like scry payoffs like Legolas or I don't know, so, some other like a Galadriel or something. Uh, I've seen these kind of big th- like three color piles that really like to scry and draw cards, in which case uh, this is a really strong addition. Last uncommon here is Golem's Bite. One mana, minus two, minus two, and then you can pay four, exile it from your graveyard to get tempted by the ring. Really, really good re- removal, you know, it's just solid. Yeah, this is a good deadweight impression. I think even in this format, it's it's a bit better, right? Like that exile effect isn't all that effective. And, you know, spending that amount of mana for just a, a single tempt isn't like game breaking, but I have used it to, to good success where I really needed to get an unblockable creature in to get the last bit of damage or something mm-hmm. along those lines. And uh, yeah, I mean, when you need to do that, this comes in clutch. So um, a solid deadweight with upside, I think is is just fine. Yeah. Plus, sometimes you self-mill it in your graveyard, just get a little bit of value for free. Yep. The rare here is 
Sauron's Ransom. Hmm. Uh, this is the one blue-black. It's kind of like the uh, factor fiction effect. Choose an opponent. They look at the top four cards of your library and separate them into a face-down pile and a face-up pile. Put one pile into your hand and the other into your graveyard. The ring tempts you. This is a, uh, a tricky one to play both with and against, I've found. Sometimes people don't really know how to do this. I once had someone give me a three and a one pile. I don't remember which was face up or which was face down. I just took the three instantly. Yeah. Uh, for the record, you should always put two and two. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is going to be a three mana draw two usually. And you have a little bit more information than what you're drawing. I mean, if you see face up stuff that's good, just take it. Even if it's like, imagine you cast like a divination and you drew those two cards. If you're happy with that, just take it. If it's like two lands they put in the face up pile, sure, take the face down pile. But um, sometimes they'll try to mind game you. Uh, what you do want to do is make sure these two piles are as even in power level as possible. And then maybe make the one that's face up. I don't know. It goes both ways. I would say make the one that's face up uh, a little stronger um, because some people are, are just incentivized to take the, the face down pile because they're like, ooh, what could I get under, you know, door number two? But um, you could also say make the face down pile stronger because, I mean, against me, I would say make the face down pile stronger because I'm almost always going to take the face up one. Just like, you know, just knowing what I can see. Uh I don't know. What, what, what do you do here? No, I think you highlighted it pretty effectively. This isn't a card that I'm very excited to play most of the time in limited. Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes in, it depends on the format really, but sometimes this card is like this type of effect is something I want. Most of the time I'd rather just have something that's actually doing something right. Like this is kind of, I mean, I guess this is better than a divination, which is three mana draw to. Yeah. Yeah. You get a little bit of selection, but your opponent has perfect knowledge of what you drew. So, you know, that's a bit of a problem. There's this like weird wacky mind game of am I taking the right pile or not? Sometimes I don't particularly care to play that sub game. So um, (laughs) needless to say, in this pack, it wasn't something I was interested in. Um, For me, this pack is between the Golem's Bite and the Dunland Curbane. Yep, totally agree. I think the Bite is a little stronger, just one mana efficient removal. This takes care of a lot of the pesky 2-2s in the set. A lot of the uh, signpost uh, vector uncommons are, are just, you know, (laughs) <laughs> You're very happy to kill those with your one mana when they're trying to, you know, build their game around the Mount Hur or something or an Imrahil or a, um, an Arwen and Domiel. Like just answering all those when you only have one land in play just so easily on the on the draw, then it feels great. Kurbane is probably the next best card in the pack, though. And then I'd probably take the Sauron's Ransom then the Lorien Revealed and the Pathfinder. Sauron's Ransom, you really want to pick up when you're already in blue-black. Right, like I was just going to say three, that. Pick three, and you're like, oh, cool. <laughs> I could use a card yeah. draw spell. Yeah, this isn't a card that I'm excited to first pick just because it is a two-color card. It's It doesn't really go well as a splash either. Yeah. Like, you don't just want to jam this in every deck that runs black or blue. Like, you really need a deck that's designed to leverage this card effectively, and uh, I don't want to start my draft that way. So... Goblin's Bite kept me open. Def- that was the card that I ended up pick- taking here and uh, ended up putting together a pretty solid black-red deck. Honestly, I might play my second Lorien Revealed over my first Sauron's Ransom. Hmm. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> well, while you do, on to our Teferi Tibble. This is our Roses and Thorns style segment where Ben and I share a high and a low from the past week. So, Ben, what's up? Not too much. Uh, it's summer vacation for me, so as some have noted, I've been kind of jamming a bunch of trophies. I'm this is on the Teferi side, obviously. I'm number two right now in the traditional draft uh, trophy r- rankings. 
I'm at 18 trophies. 19 trophies is held by number one. So maybe today I can get up there. <laughs> That'd be kind of cool. I can, uh, I don't know, brag about that or something. That'd be nice. Uh, so th- that's been fun. I honestly still loving this set and uh, still trying to gather a, a bit of a collection of in-person cards too. Um, going to make at least one commander deck out of this stuff. Maybe some casual decks just to jam with friends or students at school. Who knows? Uh, one downside, I guess I'll jump into Tibble, was that I missed the open. Uh, which was a bummer because I don't know, you're never locked for cash, obviously, <laughs> while playing in an arena open. But I, I felt that I could pretty easily make day two. And then I liked my odds from there. Right. But uh, honestly, instead, I, I was camping. So it, it was an interesting experience. We ended up having to cut our trip short because of uh, some torrential downpours and storms and Gotta say, having to run out of a tent to uh, to use the bathroom in the middle of the night, <laughs> in the middle of a downpour, uh, it was an interesting experience. Uh, it's one that I, I'm very happy I did, but one that I will likely not repeat for a while. Yeah, I uh, I've got plenty of stories about being in torrential downpours uh, during camping sessions. So. Um, yeah, I think it's it's part of the experience, though. I think if you went camping and it was yeah. just like a perfectly gorgeous weekend and you didn't have to deal with like any weather issues, could you really say you went camping? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, look, while being the trophy leader for, uh, for for like magic is one thing, I was the hot dog leader. <laughs> I, I ate seven hot dogs. <laughs> All right. So that was a, that was a good time by itself. Um, also on the uh, on the Teferi side. Uh, I, I watched a couple of good movies recently. I saw uh, Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson movie. Fantastic. Absolutely loved it. Really just interesting, interesting, beautiful movie. Uh, also saw the old Hobbit movie, the animated one from 1977. Very curious to hear if anyone in Discord has strong feelings about that one, because, man, it was funny. <laughs> man, it wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> How about you? What's been up? Um, I guess I'll start with my Tybalt. Um, so last week, a couple of days, I think starting Wednesday of last week, um, my dog started acting really weird in the mornings. And hmm. for some context, my dog doesn't really do anything. She just oh, like awesome. sleeps a lot. <laughs> and then like, that's about it. Like she really, she really doesn't do much of anything at all. But yeah, starting like Wednesday of last week, I would get up, do my normal morning routine. I'd feed her, take her outside. We'd go for a short walk. I'd bring her back in and she would have her ears pinned back, which is like where they like pin back to the head instead of just laying normally. And she would pant like crazy and then just start whining for like hmm. a couple hours. Hmm. And she also does these like weird, I don't know if they're like muscle spasms or if her body just shake, like she, she was scared or something. She's actually doing it literally right now. Um, <laughs> but there's a storm going on and she's always done that with thunder. Like she's always oh, had yeah. like thunder based anxiety. Oh, and um, with the July 4th stuff too, man. Yeah. That's not going to be time. Fun. But this, this thing happening last week was, was different. It was like a beautiful day and she was just, just like freaking out for seemingly no reason that went on for about three days. And I took her to the vet and the vet ran some blood work and that all came back totally normal. So nearly $400 and four hours later, they told me they have no idea what's wrong with her. And uh, on the other hand, she also needs to have teeth pulled apparently. So that's going to be like another $1,500. And, um, you know, so for a dog who doesn't do anything, she's costing me a heck of a lot, but um, I don't know. I'm still not sure what the deal is. Uh, She's still continued to, to act that way in the mornings. Um, Hmm since then. So I'm, I'm hoping maybe it has something to do with the weather. If she can just like, maybe she can just tell something about the, the weather is off. 
Um, she is super sensitive to that kind of stuff. So maybe that's what it is. And once we get through like this weird on again, off again, raining season, she'll be okay. Um, otherwise it might be like some neurological anxiety related problem. That's like spike. I have no idea. So we'll figure that out. Hope she's all good. My Teferi. Um, well, it is the 4th of July that we're recording on here. So I do have, you know, I have the day off. Um, I'm not so fortunate as Ben to have an entire summer off, but, uh, I do <laughs> have the day are. off. And then I have a couple of days off at the end of the week. Um, which is nice. I definitely need the time off. I don't take as much time off as I probably should. And that's nice to get those days. But at the same time, I'm heading out of town for a wedding that I'm in. So how relaxing those days are going to be. I not so sure, but, <laughs> um, Lots of travel coming up, uh, near, near travel though. Like I'm going that, that wedding's out of state, but it's close by. And then I've got friends from Germany coming in this week. Actually, they come in tomorrow there and they're going to stay with me. So they're basically going to have my place to themselves while I'm away for this wedding. And then we, I I get back and we go down to my parent, my mom's for her birthday. So there's like a whole bunch of travel in like the next five or six days and I'm sure I'm going to be exhausted. So that'll be good. But, um, yeah, I don't know if that's a Teferi or a Tybalt. I guess it's a bit of both. Yeah. It's a fibbled, if you will. <laughs> All right. On to our listener listener question of the week. This week, our question comes from Mikey S. in the Discord. Mikey asks, what would be the Earth equivalent to Mordor? Hmm. So we can do this in, in two ways, I think. In both uh, terms of location or in terms of vibes. And mm. uh, I'm going to start with, with vibes. Uh, man, I think someone in Discord said Florida. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's up there for sure. <laughs> Uh, in vibes, let's think of it as a place that you just really absolutely do not want to go. Uh, for me, I think something like, uh, you know, the Tonnelly Ave Circle in Jersey City. Yep, you sure do. <laughs> I was just talking about it yesterday with somebody. <laughs> to me, uh, crossing the Tonnelly Ave Circle uh, to get into like the Heights area. Um, yeah. that's approximately as difficult it's as the journey that, <laughs> that Sam and Frodo went on. Uh, I, I think that's about it. I've said multiple times that I want to find out who designed the tunnel they have circle and just have a nice, just a really friendly conversation with them. <laughs> <laughs> For context to the listener, this is a traffic circle in North Jersey that has, I think, seven or eight egress and ingress points. But then all of which are each stopped. Other. Right. They all cross each other. And all it's of which have stoplights, but none of the stoplights are timed such that they actually allow a good flow of traffic. They're all just kind of randomly, like sporadically green or red. And then even some of the on ramps, like themselves, are nightmarish. Like yes. they're, they're these merge exit nightmares that people are just like flying through. And I, it I've also never happens felt to be a U haul, like next to yeah. that circle. So like some people are trying to get in and out of this thing with box trucks and like, driving a u-haul for the first time in the totally circle yeah it's it's a bit of a nightmare i think you know like i said i was talking about this literally last night with somebody i think at some point that circle made sense and then a bunch of the other infrastructure changes that have happened over time around yeah. it kind of made it a problem i think if it were designed today it would be a much better situation but how do you close that down to fix it like you can't you can't there's too much traffic going yeah. in and out of there you can't really stop that yeah so in terms of like, a, I don't know, just a, a place that's so forsaken, you, you get shivers just thinking about it, <laughs> a place from which evil crawls. Yeah, that'd be the uh, the circle in Jersey City. Um, I don't know. But in terms of like natural landscape, we've got some volcanoes, right? I don't know if there's anywhere quite as grim. Uh, yeah, not I mean, today. I mean, my my initial thought was like maybe Pompeii back when like mm. that went off. I, I imagine that probably had Mordor vibes at that point. 
Um, Mount St. Helen was another one that came to mind when that erupted. Um, though, frankly, I haven't been to very many places on the planet. So, uh, (laughs) there may be a bunch that I just don't know of that would have been perfect Mordor's. Um, Mikey suggested Yellowstone. I think in some ways that may be accurate. I hear that Yellowstone is becoming a problem because of the show. A lot of people from like the California area are moving out there and just like completely destroying what that Hmm. area was like. Like they're, they're not gentrifying necessarily, but like citifying it, I guess. Hmm. It's like some, somewhere that's like a super rural, like nice kind of national park area is now becoming like a city with a bunch of uh, people moving into the area, high population jumps and all that kind of stuff. So hmm. maybe that is also an effective one. Um, yeah. Well, the sure. Rings definitely has some, uh, some capitalist war machine critiques to it. I've seen parts of Yellowstone that look pretty barren, you know, there's some, some like salt, I don't know. I'm no geologist here, but I would describe them as like flats or uh, not even marshes, but these like dreary flatlands of kind of geothermal activity. So Yellowstone definitely has some of that action going on. Uh, Mike, yes, did specifically say the Earth equivalent, but uh, Olympus Mons is probably a pretty good (laughs) (laughs) uh, substitute, too. Wait, were you saying those would be marsh flats then? Oh, man. But we already established that Mount Doom is black red. I don't know. All right. On to our main topic. This week is our Lord of the Rings rare roundup. We try to do this every set. It's one that it sounds like most of our listeners do quite enjoy. So let us know in the discord if you want us to continue doing these throughout the set. But obviously when we do our uh, format breakdowns and our first impression shows and a lot of the things early on in a format, we don't really get the opportunity to talk about too many rares or mythics. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to chat through basically all our favorite rares. A lot of the ones that have popped up that we've noticed, whether in gameplay or during drafts, things that maybe have exceeded expectations or fell flat. And um, we're just going to kind of talk through them, how you can best use them and how you can have the most fun with them. Yep. And obviously there'll be some chaff in here, but also some decidedly non-chaff. Definitely keep an eye out for anything that could make a, uh, a good splash in the in the draft chaff cube. First off the bat, we've got Doors of Durin. Uh, three red green. This is the legendary artifact that rare. Whenever you attack, you scry two. Then you can reveal the top card of your library. If it's a creature, you put it on the battlefield tapped and attacking. And then until your next turn, it gains trample if you control a dwarf and hexproof if you control an elf. Speak, friend, and enter. Fun little, uh, this one, I don't know if it's top down or bottom up, but it kind of feels like it has aspects of both, right? I mean, that little dwarf and elf clause at the end. Yeah, I, I think that's like a nice little nod. For the most part, it feels kind of bottom up in my opinion, but, um, yeah, this seems, this is a fun card. I don't know that. I I mean, I haven't had the opportunity to play with it yet and I haven't seen it played, but I've heard good things. Um, this is definitely a format where you want to be attacking and the scry thing just kind of being stapled onto a card in green seems relevant. Um, and then, I mean, the fact that you just get to cheat creatures into play is just excellent. Right. So, Oh yeah. I had a, a Jund deck where I was playing black green and I was splashing for doors of Durin and I had two copies of the voracious fell beast, the six mana four, four flyer ETB, your opponent sacks something and you make a food. Uh, I got to hit the fell beast off of doors of Durin and it oh, was that's gross. nasty. Yeah. Just, Oh uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that blocker you thought you had actually it's gone. I have a food in the four, four <laughs> deal with it, but uh, no doors of Durin is awesome. Problem is red green straight up. Isn't that good. I think taking Doors of Durin first pick is maybe one of the reasons to go into it. But even then, I'd kind of prefer to be playing Black Red and Splash it than actually just straight up Red Green. Green isn't very conducive to like these nice big mid-range decks sometimes. Uh, You just get run over by card advantage or people that are massing and getting value through that. Uh, But Doors of Durin is an awesome card. Um, 
one thing I've noticed sometimes uh, when you scry two, you don't see a creature. So you'd have to bottom and uh, hope for the best. And uh, I, I, I have hit blind a couple times. Uh, something to be careful of, order your triggers properly. If you have another uh, scry on attack trigger, which there are a couple creatures in the set that do, uh, make sure you order it such that your creature scry resolves first and then the doors of Durin's scry resolves after. That way you can get a, a little bit more information about hopefully revealing a, a creature on top. Yeah, so next up here we've got Faramir, Faramir Prince of Athelion. This is the two white, re- uh, two white blue, 3-3 three, three, human noble. Uh, and it basically just lets you draw a card if your opponent didn't attack you or you make a bunch of 1-1s if they did. Commonly known now as Unfaramir. This card <laughs> yeah. is just ridiculous. I mean, it's a 4-mana 3-3, three, three, so on base, you know, base rate it feels overcosted. But the fact that you get to either draw a card or build an army no matter what your opponent does. And even if this thing dies, you still get that trigger is yeah. just absurd. This is usually at very worst, a format of three, three draw a card because really they'd have to kill it before your end step. <laughs> like how many times are they allowing for, for that to happen? And not very often. Uh, what really like maybe is the best feeling in the format is when your Faramir, like you cast it, you pass to them, they play their fifth land. They look at their hand they cast some junk creature and then pass the turn and you're like, yep, game's over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just win. Yeah, uh, because you're either drawing an extra card a turn, which, spoiler alert, that's very good, and not taking any damage, that's when you want to be drawing an extra card a turn, when you're not taking any damage. Or they are attacking you, hoping to race, and then sometimes, I mean, how can they race three one ones a turn? Like, what are they hitting you with where eventually, I mean, three turns of that, if they're swinging with like a 2-1 flyer, like an Athelian Kingfisher or something. They're just getting it in the air and hoping to race you that way. Uh, what are they going to do? Have profitable blocks on nine one ones, 12 one ones. <laughs> like, yeah. And they can't get through on the ground because they gave you three one ones that you could chump with or sack to effects or combo block down bigger creatures. Uh, just a, a really brutal card. Definitely worth splashing. I, I literally splashed Faramir in a, in a red green deck and it was it was awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really don't know that there's any deck I wouldn't at least think about playing this card. I mean, there are, obviously, don't get me wrong, there are there are situations where it's not right to splash like a two off color card. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just mentioned one where you did it and it worked, but that I'm also that isn't not. always. Yeah, I mean, that is also that, that's not exactly the 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 default way of thinking about this card, but it is that good. Like it, it's a card that is worth considering in just about every deck and seeing if you can make it work. Again, once they've hit you. It's like, yeah, maybe they get in once, but then to Ben's point, like they, how are they getting in again? And if they do, you can be selective about which creature does get in so that you still get more creatures to chump with in the future. It's just bonkers. Next, I actually want to talk about a bit of an underperformer. That's Elven Chorus, a three and a green enchantment. You can look at the top card of your library at any time. You can cast creature spells from the top of your library and creatures you control have tapped to add one mana of any color. This effect in some formats would just be brutally unstoppable. Uh, I think in this format, there's something limiting about the creatures. And I think that's kind of why this one is, it it usually performs a little less good than you want it to. Um, First of all, you are limited by like what's on the top of your library. So sometimes you just hit a bunch of lands and, or instants and sorceries and you're sad about it. Uh, But this set also has the highest density of spells that make creatures in sets in recent memory. Uh, Sure, if you're playing red, white, you'll have 15 literal creatures. Maybe not, though, um, if you have a bunch of rallies at the Hornburg. But even cards like Rally at the Hornburg, right? If you're playing red, green, you might have a couple of those. You might only have 13 creatures. Well, then Elven Chorus gets a lot worse. Or uh, maybe if you're playing like a black green deck, 
a bunch of your spells just amass, and that's where the majority of their value is. Um, well, then Elven Chorus goes down a little bit. Same with some of those conditional counter spells like Glorious Gale. Those are kind of at their worst too. Um, or, or what is it? Stern Discipline? Um, Stern Scolding? Whatever it is. Uh, those types of cards, well, they looked incredible on their front. Uh, and they do have their moments, right? Uh, the creatures just aren't as important in this set as they sometimes are. So Elven Chorus, still good. I would still play it in a lot of green decks, but I wouldn't necessarily let this pull me into green. I would take like a like a tempt uh, like a call the call the ringer. Oh man, what's that that black removal spell called? Is it claim oh claim the precious. I would take a claim the precious over this every single time. Yeah. Also, just looking at like stats for this card, I mean, its game in hand win rate is like a fifty percent, right? Mm, it's, yikes. Games played win rate is forty nine percent. Like it's not yeah, it's yikes. not putting up good numbers. That's, I mean, so far below what you'd expect a strong effect like this to be, right? I mean, that this is a very strong effect, and this is a slower format. Uh, I think then maybe my hypothesis is correct, that it's something to do with the fact that creatures just don't hit that well in the set. Well, and I think on top of that, too, is there's enough going around that, like, you're essentially, unless you already have a big board of creatures, which in most cases is pretty tough to do at by turn four, right? There aren't these, like, massive armies by turn four in most most cases in this format mm-hmm. so you are often taking most of a turn off to play this and at turn four taking a turn off to do that is probably not the best thing you can be doing um if you have a couple of creatures out maybe you get to double spell that turn and and you're not really taking the full turn off but um i think most of the time you'd rather just play something that actually affects the board that turn this does let you cast creatures from the top but again you're playing a lot of spells that are also creatures, so you don't get to cast those from the top, which isn't really helping. And the removal in this set is just really good as well. So it's easy to get your creatures picked off by the time you would want to play this, and then you don't have a board, so you are taking a turn off. And then, yeah, maybe you're top decking a spell that amasses instead of an actual creature. And, well, now this card is pretty useless. So next up, we've got Call of the Ring. This is one in a black for the enchantment that tempts you on your upkeep and then allows you to choose uh to pay two life whenever you choose a ring bear and draw a card if you do this one's good yeah i mean this uh, one is the opposite yeah. sort of <laughs> it's putting up really good numbers 57.8 percent games played win rate 59.7 percent game and hand win rate it's a card that is cheap enough for these enchantments right it's it is technically another one of those enchantments that doesn't do anything the turn you play it but taking turn two off in this format doesn't actually feel bad from my experience Mm-hmm. If you're taking three off, yeah, that's probably where you don't want to be. But playing something that's on turn two that doesn't exactly affect the board right away, but is going to set you up in the future. Pretty great. These repeatable tempting effects, really good. Um, the fact that it does continue to tempt you past hitting the max, like the four tempts on the ring does let you continue to change your ring bearer up. So you can still use this effect um, basically until you've killed yourself. <laughs> yeah. um, and And as we've mentioned a few times already in this episode card advantage in this format is really 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 good so having a repeatable way to do that it's also a may so you can choose whether or not you want to get that extra card really flexible card yep uh it goes something like uh rohirrim lancer the one 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 menace into this and you're just (laughs) how are they stopping you this pairs really well with uh hyper aggressive low power decks because then you don't care too much about your life total you're happy to pay a bunch of it uh you can use those extra cards curve out efficiently with them and always having a ring bearer is just really good uh, especially when it's guaranteed like to come in at step four every time. If you have, if your opponent has like a one, one and they're on ring step four, it's a big threat. 
you actually have to kill it at some point. You can't just hope to uh, draw on the creatures that can block it because you can't block it with most of your creatures. So you have to either kill them first after they've drawn a bunch of cards. And yeah, they paid some life, so maybe. Uh, or just somehow manage to cobble together enough removal to kill one of their creatures every turn for the rest of the game. And that's probably not going to happen. So Call the Ring, uh, I've actually had this one played against me a million times. Haven't gotten to play it myself. Uh, it's, it's usually one of those ones that I kind of go, ugh man, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta slog through this. Yeah. I feel like in traditionally you almost always are think at least thinking, maybe you don't actually do this cause you know, you got to play to your outs, but you're almost always thinking, well, do I have any enchantment removal on the sideboard? If so, let's just end this game and get on to number two. Cause <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What is something West to Fold, uh, Westfold rider, the three, uh, the two mana three, one that can, uh, sack to disenchant. That's been pretty strong for effects like this or random sagas coming up here and there. Up next, we've got Gandalf the Grey. Three blue-red for a 3-4 Avatar Wizard at rare. Obviously a legend. Uh, I undervalued this one by a lot. This is the one that says whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, choose one that hasn't been chosen. You can tap or untap target permanent. Gandalf deals three damage to each opponent. Copy target instant or sorcery spell you control and choose new targets for the copy. Put Gandalf on top of its owner's library. Uh, you always just choose the third one, the copy the spell. You play Gandalf and then you go, all right, smite the deathless, your two best things, attack. And then it's like, oh, <laughs> turns out that's pretty good. Or uh, I saw someone copy a Lorien revealed with this once, draw six. That was pretty nasty. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, Gandalf is, is just awesome. Uh, I think I was thinking a five mana three, four with some kind of spell based effects. Uh, it might be a little flimsy, but as I said before, you can have these decks with like 17 instants and sorceries in them where you can kind of turbo through Gandalf. I've seen people turbo through in like two turns, put them on top, redraw them, start turboing through again. Uh, it's very doable. And they're adding to the board at the same time. Even in like a Grixis deck, spells like Mortar, Muster or uh, Swarming of Moria, uh, these both are instants and sorceries and then also amass onto the board and give you some other value through treasures or cards. Uh, Gandalf fits perfectly into those types of decks. So kind of like a blue-red, spellsy, control-ish win con, uh, along with Gandalf Sanction. If you have one of those and one of these, your blue-red spells deck that seems to do nothing and maybe struggle to win all of a sudden becomes a powerhouse. Yeah, you know where I really like this card? Where's that? In Jeskai Flicker Free Spells in the Draft Shaft Cube. Ooh... Ooh, interesting. Copying one of those. Mm, okay. Yeah, we, we, we can work <laughs> with this. Because it, it also, if you can flicker him, then like you don't have to worry about the fourth one where he goes back on your library. You just True. Can, you can just keep going through the other three. And right, you can copy our, flickers uh, to flicker all your other stuff. And Oh, uh, man. Because yeah, our, our flicker archetype really needs a, a bump, oh, it needs, right? Yeah, it needs some help. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Next up, we've got Goldberry River Daughter. This is one in a blue for a 1-3 at rare. With two activated abilities, the first is tap, move a counter of each kind, not on Goldberry River Daughter from another target permanent you control onto Goldberry. And the other is pay blue, tap, move one or more counters from Goldberry onto another target permanent you control if you do draw a card. So this is a really cool way to just kind of coalesce counters onto Goldberry and then eventually divvy them back up, giving them to other creatures. And hey, while you're at it, go ahead and draw a card. <laughs> yeah, th this is a super slow effect, but... Uh, most commonly, I play this in blue-black with a mass. So then you can just, I don't know, it, it, sometimes even use her like a sack outlet, where if you have a, 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 an army with one counter on it, you can take that counter, put it onto her, then play another spell that lets you a mass, 
Uh, it's almost like you get to kind of do the modular thing, like with artifact creatures, how when they die, they put their counters on the stuff. You can kind of use Goldberry like that, kind of steal all the counters from a mass token, then reamass some more. Definitely a slow value card. Uh, another cool thing you can do is re-trigger chapters of sagas. Mm-hmm. So uh, with Goldberry, if let's say you're, uh, I did this once with, uh, I think it's Oath of the Grey Host, the uh, three and a black one that eventually uh, for chapter three makes you three one ones. With the saga trigger on the stack, you activate her, take one of the uh, the counters off the saga, put it onto her, doesn't do anything on her, obviously, but it brings the, the saga back down one, then it adds the one for the turn, uh, so you get your three one ones, and then you're left back down at two because you subtracted one. You don't re-trigger the second chapter, uh, it just sees it as removing the counter that's there and not you know, adding the counter is when the counter is added that you get the effect. Uh, but then the next turn, you get to re-trigger the third chapter. So then I wound up with six 1-1 flyers, uh, which is pretty good. So uh, cool little micro combos, Goldberry. Yeah, the other thing is um, if you have the time, which I guess you you would need a way to untap her, but there is that blue uncommon that does that. Oh, yeah. um, if, if you have the time, you can pull counters off of the saga, dump those counters onto some random creature that's not Goldberry and just infinitely have that saga on the board because Hmm. you can move any of those counters to another target permanent. It doesn't have to be the permanent type that you pulled them from. So what a wacky magic card. Yeah, you can, you can do some infinite saga nonsense with her. That said, um, when it comes to other counters that are probably more prevalent, things like plus one, plus one counters, you can't stack those on top of her. So she can only carry one type, one instance of a counter of any type right so she yeah. can have one plus one plus one counter on her on her one saga counter a lore counter whatever they're called mm-hmm. but you can't get like two plus one plus one counters on her through this effect next up man i love this one horn of gondor three mana legendary artifact at rare when it enters the battlefield you make a one one human and then uh you can pay three tap it you make x one one humans where x is the number of humans you have Cranko, anybody? Colorless Cranko, <laughs> love it only a little bit better in some ways because this uh it's not actually better, um, but this one comes <laughs> into the, this enters the battlefield with a with a soldier, which I guess Cranko himself is a goblin, so he kind of does the same thing. Forget what I'm well, saying. Plus, this uh, is just worse than Cranko. <laughs> I mean, it is colorless is, though. Hold on, hold on. I like this a little more than Cranko because what this thing can do, you can play it on turn six. <laughs> you can play it on turn six. You can play it immediately, tap it, and what are the odds this is your only human? Right? Maybe you tap it and immediately make two or three one ones, uh, and then after that, you tap it, make like seven or eight. And then like 16 or 17. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, your floor yeah. is six mana to make two one ones, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. But then the turn after that, you make four one ones and then you make eight yeah. one ones. And maybe they kill one of them. It's kind of the, um, what was that insect, the three mana one one? Uh, and the landfall, you made a copy of it. Oh, that's Back stupid. Yeah, I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. It is the same problem as that. Where though, sometimes your opponent... Beetle or something? I don't know. Yeah, Beetle Scoot Swarm. Swarm. Scoot Swarm, that's it. Sometimes your opponent will be forced to target one of your Scoot Swarm tokens, to target one of your 1-1 tokens, just to keep you off activating for like X equals 4 for longer. Uh, and that that's probably pretty good, <laughs> given that this is a, a 3-mana generic artifact that you can put this in literally any deck. I'll say, I think I've opened Horn of the Mark, which is the two mana horn that doesn't really, I'll play it in like aggressive white decks, but really only red, white. And sometimes you don't even want it there. Uh, I've opened Horn of the Mark. Mark. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) I've I've opened Horn of the Mark a million times. And every time I think it's Horn of Gondor, I'm like, yes, the Horn of, shoot, the Mark. (laughs) (laughs) This dang Rohirrim. Give me the, give me the, give me the Gondor horn. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, it is a good effect. Also, it's an artifact, which is, you know, 
almost always harder to deal with than a creature. So there is that. Um, at least you keep the thing around that does the the multiplication effect. Um, whereas, you know, with something like Cranko, if they can kill the creature, then, you know, that effect goes away. Mm-hmm. Next up, we've got King of the Oathbreakers. This is two white black for the Spirit Noble at Rare. It's a 3-3 with flying. Whenever King of the Oathbreakers or another spirit you control becomes the target of a spell, it phases out. And then whenever King of the Oathbreakers or another spirit you control phases in, create a 1-1, a tapped 1-1 white spirit creature token with flying. So, yeah, it gets targeted, phases out, comes back in, you get a 1-1. Really slow way to do the Horn of Gondor thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a very, very, very fancy way of saying 4-mana 3-3 flying hexproof. And I think people overvalued this one a little bit. I definitely did at the start. Uh, also, it came across a, a funny scenario where my opponent attacked with like a like a four three flyer into this, or no, it was like a four four flyer into this. And I had the spell that gives plus one plus three and flying. Not that that mattered. Um, and I was like, oh, nice! I can get a nice little uh, nice little combat trick blowout nope. here. <laughs> nope, I had to. I was like, wait a minute, hold on. This isn't going to do what I think it's going to do. <laughs> it will save your creature, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not going to do the two for one or the one for one thing. Yeah. The thing with King of the Oathbreakers is that it's literally never going to get targeted by a spell. I mean, the only time it is, is when your opponent hits it with like a random pump spell to phase it out and swing for lethal. So it's kind of worse than Hexproof or Ward in that regard. I am very down on this card. I, I mean, here's the problem. What happens if they play a Ford 4 Right. <laughs> what happens yeah. if they play a 4 Well, it's got to be a 4-4 four, four flyer, which, frankly, there are only a handful of, and certainly not at 4 mana in this set. Oh, I just mean, right? like, what happens if you play this, and then your opponent goes, okay, I play a 4-4 four, four haste, Aemer, right? It's like, oh, shoot, my 3-3, three, three, it's going to no, get outpaced. Like, well, that's true. It's, it's yeah. just too slow, you know? Yeah, like, it is four extremely mana, three, slow. Three flyer. Yeah, like, 4-mana 3-3 three, three flyer, that's like a common, right? Like, that's a common that you'd be like, sweet. I put that in, in a bunch of decks. Like we've had a bunch of those in blue yeah. recently. Uh, nice that Black White gets a spirit-themed one, but um, this, this is not a pull into Black White for me at all. I would see this, and no. again, I would take like a, um, so, like a pre- claim of Precious every time. Yeah, this actually feels like... It feels a lot like an illusion. Like most of the, most of the time we see an effect that's yeah. kind of like this. It's an illusion, which typically that that creature subtype has uh text on the card that says whenever this is targeted by a spell sacrifice it right um mm. this is obviously better than that but not by much really um this can also be used against you in a lot of ways if you're you know trying to rush in the air maybe this is your top end for some reason and you have like a weird black white flyers deck which i don't really think there is in this format but i guess you could make it happen. tokens it can happen but you know yeah but you attack with this and then they're just like okay point a one mana combat trick at it it doesn't get through Sure, you'll come back the next turn with a with a one one, but like doesn't matter if you're dead, right? Like yeah, it's just yeah, it's just extremely slow. So I did that exact I'm, play pattern at one point, and it worked. I just was like, all right, pop a spell on your guy, swing for lethal. Yeah, we were. I think we were both higher on this at the beginning of the format than than either of us are now. It does read really cool. It sounds like it's something that does a really cool thing, but then when you really think it through or see it in practice, you're like, oh wait, that's just kind of lame. <laughs> yeah, it's not even like a pump spell build around because when you target it with a pump spell, it just goes away. <laughs> right. You get a 1-1, one, one, but like, do you want a thing that can turn all your pump spells into tapped 1-1s? One, yeah, this is so, this actually. is actually kind of similar to the, um, what creature was that? The stupid one that we, you and I kept arguing about in, uh, 
one of the recent like remastered sets or whatever. Like the one that whenever something's whenever anything is targeted by anything, it it just gets destroyed. You know, the two black black four four flyer that. Oh, oh, right, right. This is in mom. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, it was one of the. Yeah. A, whenever a, a creature became the target of a spell ability, it got destroyed. Yeah, th- this right. has some aspects of that to it. It, it uh, sometimes it's got those awkward playing. play patterns where it's just like this, this sounds really fun, but then it's just a lot of times isn't, and most of the time it's actually just effect like it's just bad for you to have. Yeah. <laughs> Long story short, I, I'm not putting this in my decks that much. I'll put it in my black white decks, sure, but um, even then, it's not going to be one of the best cards in the deck. Let's chat about Moria Marauder. Red, red, 1-1, one, one, double strike, Goblin Warrior, rare. Uh, this thing, this thing's a, a hitter. Uh, whenever a goblin or orc you control deals combat damage to a player, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card this turn. I mentioned last week that there were some cards that serve as like single card engines like Faramir. Mor- Moria Marauder is one of them. Uh, this thing, if left unchecked, will just start smacking in and drawing you a billion cards. Specifically, it'll draw you two extra cards each turn. And uh, if you're playing like a, I mean, red-black is the obvious home for this. But if you're playing a red-black deck with like a low curve, you just get to draw an absurd amount of cards off this. Also, it's whenever any goblin or orc deals damage to them. So this, I mean, maybe you play like a a junker on turn two, like the uh, battle-scarred goblin, like the uh, two mana, two-two, when it gets blocked, deals one damage to the blocking creature. And then you play this, on the next turn, they played a 2-2 or something, and now all of a sudden, uh, they're looking at their thing and hoping it doesn't have one toughness because they're like, do I let them get in and like start this combo going? Like maybe they whip a land off the top and or like a one-mana trick or something. Moria Marauder is just a very strong card. Obviously pairs well with cheap removal and cheap combat tricks uh, to help it you know, make sure it keeps getting in. Yeah, and then once you start tempting with a ring, forget about it. Oh yeah, this thing is a nasty ring bearer. Uh, also pairs well with pump spells. This is just a good card. The only knock against it is that it's a little tricky to cast. But if you're playing like a, a heavy black red deck, um, you can usually get it down pretty early anyway. And even if you don't, you probably already have orcs and goblins on board, right? That's true. All I can say is uh, my Cranko EDH deck says hi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, this one is uh, is nuts in Cranko. All right, next up, we've got a saga. One ring to rule them all. This is two black black for a rare saga. It's got three chapters, the first of which says the ring tempts you, then each player mills cards equal to your ring bearer's power. Second is destroy all non-legendary creatures. The third is each opponent loses one life for each creature card in that player's graveyard. This is a card that I've nearly seen played once, but I used the Torment of Golem to steal it from my opponent's hand, so (laughs) they didn't get the opportunity to cast it. Um, I think that was the right play. This card seems pretty ridiculous, especially when you build around it properly. It's one of those sort of things where, you know, if you know it's coming, you can obviously just play a bunch of legends and sit back on your non-legendaries, hold those in hand. Um, That first one isn't like the end of the world, but, you know, if you have a good legend with solid power, you're going to ding them for three or four. You know, it's a good little way to make this card do something the turn it's played. You know, four mana to deal four isn't really the best thing in the world. And um, in some ways, milling your opponent isn't really good either. But um, I think this card sets up pretty nicely. I don't know the stats on this one off the top of my head. Let me see if I can pull this up while you share your thoughts on the card, Ben. But um, overall, it seems pretty, pretty decent. Yeah, and I guess it's performed pretty well. Uh, I've liked this one, although it is conditional. I've really been enjoying best of three, obviously. But, but this is one that you can't... Sometimes you'll side this out, right? If you're playing against like a, those bant piles with just bant legends green white legends um like they go turn two frodo turn three i don't know aragorn turn four faramir or something like something ridiculous like that 
uh, you just side this out because it ends up hurting you probably a little more than it hurts them. Uh, Black doesn't have, I don't think it has quite as many solid playable legends as, as some of those other ones. Uh, plus another aspect about this that's a little hit or miss is that last chapter. Again, sometimes you'll look at your opponent's graveyard. They'll be like a, I don't know, blue-black deck. Uh, they'll have like seven, eight cards in graveyard and like one creature in graveyard. So the, it, it doesn't always do exactly what you want it to do. But this is a conditional board wipe. And especially if you build your deck around this, you can usually finesse a board state where this does something for you. Yeah, that's, that's I think, it, it, it's not necessarily that you need to be like 100% up when you use this, but if you're getting any fractional advantage over your opponent when this goes through, I think it's effective. Um, mm. Looking at the, the stats on this card, it does have a seven, let's see, it's got a 55.2% game in hand win rate, which okay. actually is kind of a little bit lower than I was anticipating for 54.1% game played win rate, which yeah, is, that sounds about right. Yeah. It's not, again, it's, it's conditional. Not exceptional. Yeah. Then again, another bonus of this card, there's very few board wipes in the set to, to punish people for going super wide. So there's definitely some, uh, like board stalls where this absolutely just cracks the game open in your favor, where they maybe had like 10 tokens or something just kind of sitting back. Uh, this is one of the only ways to really come back from a, from a deficit like that. So one way to rule them all, I, I do take this pretty highly, but I do often see it get passed to me. Uh, I'm, I'm happy taking this like second or third pick pretty, pretty okay though. Yeah. I will say as far as board wipes go, I think a lot of times in this format, I tend to prefer um, fear fire foes. Oh yeah, that one is um, so nasty. It's an uncommon. Yeah, which by the which way does make me feel worse about this about one ring to rule them all, right? <laughs> when you're yeah, yeah, a little bit sure. happier about an uh, uh, an uncommon, uh, yeah. Sometimes fear fire foes will kill a bunch of legends too. <laughs> yep, and any of those decks that go really really wide are almost always making X ones. So. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, good cards in the set, let's chat about Orcish Bowmasters, which is, I believe, currently the best card in the set uh, by every metric. (laughs) Modern, limited, legacy, vintage. (laughs) Uh, One of the black 1-1 Orc Archer at rare. It's got Flash. When Orcish Bowmasters enters the battlefield and whenever an opponent draws a card except for the first one they draw on each of their draw steps, Orcish Bowmasters deal one damage to enemy target, then amass Orcs one. Uh, I actually flashed this in while my opponent activated the one ring. That was oh. kind of funny. <laughs> uh, nice. don't, make sure you don't do it when uh, they have protection from everything, though. That doesn't work out the way you think. Right. <laughs> uh, I actually did have to. I mowed down a bunch of their creatures. Uh, <laughs> and then I think I, at one point when I cast this against the one ring, I had to target myself for one of the damage. But, you know, it's, it's whatever. Uh, this card is, is nuts. This card is so good. <laughs> this is and there's also so there's a little bit of something that's maybe not hidden here, but something I think is gets overlooked really easily. Not exactly something that's going to come up very often in limited in particular, but in other formats, this will be big. Most of the time when we see effects like this, they're templated such that it says the first, uh, except the first card they draw each turn. Yeah. It specifically yeah. says in their draw steps. So if they draw a card on your turn about drawing an extra card, right? Yeah. It's like if, if they can draw a card on your turn, even if it's the only card they draw on your turn, it's going to get them, um, like, it's just there are a lot of little weird nuances with this one that that most of these types of effects don't have. And hey, you get to amass a bunch, so it's pretty solid. It is a one one, so it's easy to deal with, but for two mana, pretty solid card. Yeah, even just flashing this in on turn two to kill their like three one two drop, and then wind up with two bodies and and the threat of oh by the way you can't draw cards anymore. <laughs> right. Because uh, if if your opponent ever does cast a draw spell into this, and you just get like a four four and, and ping them for three, even if they have nothing on board, like you're still so far ahead. Uh, this is the best card in the set by win rate too. I think it's pushing like seventy two percent 
uh, game in hand win rate or something like that. Just about 71.7, yeah. Yeah, also a little fun fun fact. It's not technically a rare for rare roundup, but uh, look at the seventh best card in the set real quick. Notice anything weird about it? You mean the fact that it's not a rare? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, AMR of the Rittermark, uh, seventh best. Yeah. And it's an uncommon. Just a... Uh, I think we should shout him out here on this on this rare roundup. I love Amor. I will splash Amor, but that's the uh, four in a red, five four haste. When he attacks, if you have the creature with greatest power, you get a one one. And with five power, it's usually him. So uh, funny to see that that is as of right now for limited, like in the top ten best cards in the set, and it isn't uncommon. It's performing better than some of the mythics we have yet to talk about. Yeah, uh, just while we're on the topic, so is Fear Fire Foes. That's number nine, and also an uncommon. And also red. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so next up, we've got File of Galadriel. This is the three mana legendary artifact at rare. If you would draw a card while you have no cards in hand, draw two cards instead. If you would gain life while you have five or less life, you gain twice that much life instead. Tap, add one mana of any color. Yeah, so this kind of looked like a mana rock that I wasn't super stoked about. I think I wasn't interpreting this card right. Don't see this as a, as a mana rock so much. See this more as just a static effect for three mana. Almost ignore the mana rock part. And it just says, when you're empty-handed, you draw two instead of one. And then that becomes a lot more appealing for... This kind of looks like it's it's like a go big, add one mana, many color. See, I saw it as a, as a... Not a top end, really, but like... When I read that, my first instinct was to think about really aggressive decks that are dumping your hand really fast. Problem with that is what when do those decks want to take turn three off to play something like this? That's the thing. They don't. So you're exactly right. And I think I misinterpreted this one. I was thinking when would a deck that, you know, once a three mana mana rock that taps one mana of any color ever be empty handed, right? If they're playing like there's six drops or five drops, they're splashing for stuff. Um, those types of decks don't usually get empty handed. And those decks don't often get to five or less life. Sometimes they die to like one big swing um, or that even then, like how are they getting life? Are they playing like a go big food deck, like generous Ent? maybe? I don't know. But uh, five Galadriel is exactly what you said it is. If you can play this in a, a hyper aggressive red deck, red, white, black, some of these combos and get down to be empty handed, uh, then you just draw to a turn. And, and that's a really strong effect. At that point, you don't really even care about the add one mana of any color. It's just a three mana. You're drawing two cards every turn as long as you can stay empty handed. And in that case, it's great. I had this perform really well for me. I see this pairing really well with Call of the Ring as well. You know, where you're oh, paying yeah. two to draw an extra card anytime you make a ring bearer. Once you get below five, you can use your life gain spells that you may have in your deck to try to keep you alive that are twice as effective. You're going to be drawing three cards a turn instead at that point, right? Um, yeah, I think that's that's pretty sweet. Again, not really sure when you're supposed to play this in those decks because you'd rather typically be taking turn three to play a really relevant creature. Maybe you Honestly, just wait until last. later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe this is the last card in your hand and you play this and then you start drawing two. I think that makes sense. And that's um, how it goes, yeah. And then, yeah, you really don't care about using it as a mana rock unless maybe you've got some really crazy bomb that you want to splash and then you can kind of get some extra value off of this but yeah i agree i don't i don't really look at this as rock uh, another note about this if you have a ring bear make sure you play your land or a creature or whatever uh, pre-combat because then when you attack with your ring bear for the uh, the second part of the ring you'll draw two instead of one uh, also man orcish bowmasters is so stupid I was about, yeah i was gonna say don't yeah. play this with orcish bow if your opponent has an orcish bowmasters yeah or orcish bowmasters uh i forgot to mention just really dunks on the second level of the ring because that's not a may ability if they have a, a ring bear and they they attack with it they are drawing that extra card and uh sometimes i had my opponent attack with a, a one uh, a one one ring bear and i was like okay draw the card kill your ring bear <laughs> <laughs> yikes 
Oh, so these uh, these next couple are packages. I wanted to talk about display of power and press the enemy. Display of power is one red red. This spell can't be copied. Uh, copy any number of target instants and or sorcery spells. You may choose new targets for the copies. Obviously, it has to be an instant. Uh, and then press the enemy is two blue blue instant. Return target spell or non-land permanent and opponent controls to its owner's hand. You may cast an instant or sorcery spell with equal or less a mana value from your hand without paying its mana cost. Two kind of junker blue-red spells rares that I actually put both into one deck. And this was a this was a fun one. This was a blue-red deck that was playing a bunch of Erebor Flamesmiths, the uh, two-mana two-one pinger whenever you cast an instant or sorcery. I had some fiery inscriptions, the uh, three mana enchantment. Uh, whenever you cast an instant or sorcery, you deal two to each opponent. And uh, these two cards actually perform very well in that deck. Uh, I think I had like one Gandalf sanction that I got to copy with display of power. Obviously great. Got to hit my opponent for like 15 damage or something. Uh, press the enemy also worked out pretty well. Getting to uh, just have an extra instant or sorcery cast when you want a stupidly high density of instant and sorcery casts uh, worked out well. Press the enemy is not something I would take and put in like a blue-green deck or a blue-black deck uh, unless I had a very good reason to. But when I was going super hard on the vector of uh, playing as many instants and sorceries as possible, press the enemy getting the cast of sorcery at, with Flash was actually pretty good. Yeah, I feel like uh, Display of Power is another one that is looking pretty sweet for the draft draft cube. Mm. And another two-card package that I found, uh, Galadriel of Lothlorien. One green-blue, 3-3, three, three, Elf Noble. Uh, whenever the ring tempts you, if you choose a creature other than Galadriel as a ring bearer, you scry three. Whenever you scry, you can reveal the top card of your library. If it's a land, you put it on the battlefield tapped. And then Elrond, Master of Healing. Two green-blue, rare, 4-4, four, four, Elf Noble. Whenever you scry, you put a 1-1 one, one counter on each of up to X tar uh, target creatures, where X is the number of cards looked at this way. So if you scry three, you put a 1-1 one, one counter on three creatures. Uh, and then whenever a creature you control with a 1-1 counter on it becomes the target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, you may draw a card. So the best blue-green decks that I've played tend to have exactly both of these. Uh, mm. These are kind of the two powerful blue-green vector build-arounds that you need to make blue-green worth going into. And I do think they're worth taking early because if you can lock yourself into blue-green, sometimes you'll see like an Arwen Endomial, the, the, uh, the two-mana um, uncommon. You'll see her like seventh pick because it's not going in any other deck except for blue-green scry. So if you take like a Galadriel early, you can really build a stupidly synergistic blue-green deck that can wipe the floor with even some of the best black-red decks because you end up just putting so many counters and having so much information about the top of your library and plus blue is full of good card draw spells, right? Uh, then you get to benefit off those by growing your board with Elrond, ramping yourself with Galadriel, and then... Uh, all those kind of junky commons, the Lothlorien Lookout, the one of the green 1-3, attack scry 1. Uh, if When you attack, if you have like an Arwen or um, like an Elrond, if you're attacking with that that uh, two mana 1-3, and then all of a sudden it's a 3-5 that's still getting in and, and scrying you some to help find more payoffs, more card draw, less lands, uh, you wind up with a really cool deck. I've really liked the way these good blue-green decks play, but similar to how uh, I thought Display of Power and Press the Enemy would belong specifically only in a super hardcore blue-red spells vector, Galadriel and Elrond belong specifically only in a hardcore blue-green scry vector. You don't even really want to splash them outside of that because only the blue-green scry vector is going really hard on scries. You just don't have enough you know, scries in the average green-white deck to want to splash a Galadriel or an Elrond. So... Um, 
I do recommend you know, going in on these early. I'll take them pack one, pick one, and just not be super thrilled about it. If there's something like a claim the precious, though, I might still take that over. Depends on how I'm feeling. Okay, next up, we've got Last March of the Ends. This is the six red, uh, sorry, six green, green mythic sorcery that can't be countered. And it says draw cards equal to the greatest toughness among creatures you control, then put any number of creature cards from your hand onto the battlefield. This is an interesting card in that it's not very good. <laughs> it's it's pretty bad. And an effect that says draw a billion cards, dump your hand onto the battlefield. Typically you expect to be quite good. It's just not in this format. I mean, it's game and hand win rate is like seven, 47%. It's, like, <laughs> it's not good at all. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think this also pairs with my, my whole rant about creatures earlier. This is just not a very strong creature set. I mean, some of the best creatures in the set are like two twos and one threes and yeah. stuff like that. So getting to dump a bunch of those on your battlefield might not swing it the way you want it to. Uh, I will say I did have a blue green deck where I played last March of the Ents. I think I had like three ends in the deck too. So it was kind of flavorful. Not a very good deck. I think I went like one, two or two, one with it. But I did post a screenshot in Discord where uh, my opponents, uh, my opponent saw me reveal Amor of the Rittermark off of some effect when I had no red mana sources at all. And I did have Last March of the Ents in hand for the next turn. And I was like, ooh, opponent might be wondering how I'm going to get this Amor onto the battlefield. Well, don't worry. <laughs> I've got a way. And I will say in that deck, when I did actually resolve it once, uh, it was it was nuts. I played like 15 mana worth of stuff, swung with a huge board. That deck actually did have both Elrond and Galadriel in it. So I was maybe winning either way, but <laughs> it, it was pretty funny. I will say that there were some other games where it just rotted in my hand and I lost. Yeah, I think uh, rotted um, <laughs> trees Poor ends. Yeah, um, I think I think there are a couple of things that make this card less effective than I originally gave it credit for. Um, eight mana is a lot in this format. It's a slow format, but ramp isn't like all over the place unless you're really building a deck for it. I suppose if you're trying to get to this, you are really building a deck for it. If you can get a couple of those woes, pathfinders and such, getting to eight's not really all that difficult. There are a handful of cards also that create treasures. So if maybe you're playing a green red deck or something and you've got like swarming of Moria, you can generate some treasures and all that. Fine. You can get to eight mana. That said, um, a lot of the creatures that are really good in this format are ones that aren't just good because of their stat lines. They're good because of effects mm. that you build on top of as the game progresses. Think yeah. creatures like Galadriel and Elrond and even a bunch of the Legolases. They, you, they need you to do things after they hit the board for them to actually be very good. So just slamming them down on the board doesn't really do anything. And this is a format where while card advantage is really good, um, unless you've got one of the ends, like your greatest toughness might be three or four. And yeah, then like, true. if you're hitting maybe 50% of those as creatures, you're playing two creatures. Like, it's not like you're actually going to jam, you know, six creatures onto the board and just swarm your opponent most of the time with this card. Yeah. Last up here, we've got a big one. We've got the one ring. Uh, four mana, legendary artifact. It's indestructible. When it enters the battlefield, if you cast it, you gain protection from everything until your next turn. At the beginning of your upkeep, you lose one life for each burden counter on the one ring. You tap, put a burden counter on the one ring, and draw a card for each burden counter on the one ring. So now that we've had some some time and I've gotten a chance to play with this a bunch and play against it a bunch, uh, yeah, it's busted. This card is so good. <laughs> and it is, uh, I mean, currently, it's starting to see play in modern and vintage and legacy and other formats. And I saw a funny tweet. I'll try to look up who it was by. But um, 
something along the lines of that this is a the printing of the one ring was a great way to find out what the four worst cards in every modern deck were because now <laughs> every modern deck is just jamming four copies of the one ring instead so the joke with this is that the more you use it the worse it gets for you right well there's ways to mitigate that whether through life gain or sacrificing this or uh, the best way is to just kill your opponent before it kills you and honestly, the rate on this isn't even that bad. The the, uh, the, the phasing out kind of thing, the getting protection from everything, that matters, right? I've had some opponents that didn't really read that ability. They like attack into me thinking they have me dead. And then I just kill them on the crackback. So, so you might get spotted the win that way sometime. Um, but also just like paying one life for one card. Good. You'd always do that, right? Paying two life for two cards. You would probably still always do that. Paying three life for three cards. Yeah. <laughs> Paying for life for four cards. Also, yes. Uh, I the mean, thing is, this is the type of effect. A lot of times we see something like this and it's not like it just happens, right? You put a counter on a thing, you take damage, you draw a card, put another counter, you take two damage, you draw a card, you put another counter, you take three damage, you draw a card. This you can yeah. just do when you want to do it. So you don't have to. I mean, I guess you're still losing the life, but the drawing cards and making it, too, it bigger. Right, right. Yeah. Like making it bigger and and all that stuff. Um you, you don't have to do. So there's that. Mm-hmm. There are ways, you know, maybe you've got something like, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Goldberry to start pulling counters off of it. Um, that's, <laughs> oh, that's, that's so funny. Option. I never realized that. Um, oh man, that'd be a cool combo. Yeah. And then again, if you can, if you've got the time, you can, uh, put the counters from Goldberry onto something else to keep pulling them off of the ring. So you might want a, a better backup plan than Goldberry. <laughs> I'm just saying it works, you know, like that's, you can, that's funny, you can strip counters off of this and in other formats as well, there are other ways to strip, strip, uh, counters off of things. So yeah, there are ways to mitigate it for sure. And I just like, this is something you don't have to continue to scale up if you don't want to. The best way to deal with this on your side of the board is uh, to fling it at your opponent for four with uh, improvised club. The backup one is uh, cast into the fire thematic, obviously, which has a exile target artifact. So the cool thing about this is you can dig for your answers, right? You're drawing like five cards uh, plus the one that you're drawing for turn, right? Each time that you use this. Uh, also, if you're, if you're keeping if you're activating this every turn, there's a good chance you've stabilized on board, right? Because you're drawing many cards, dumping your hand every turn, curving out properly. One thing I will say, though, uh, you got to be careful. Sometimes you won't find your answer. I found the one ring to be at its best when you're pressuring your opponent and you can convert all that on board advantage into actually making your opponent die. Uh, If you just like, I don't know, if you just build up a giant fortress and hide behind it with the one ring, it will eventually probably just kill you. Um, or get even just deal you enough damage before you find your answer that maybe your opponent has some fling effects or has a way to get through damage or they make a ring bearer that you can't block and they start draining you for three. Um, so the one ring, thematically, it has its downsides, but I would never pass this card. Yeah, I don't know. I'm still on the play this, put a burden counter on it, draw your card, <laughs> put, put another burden counter on it, gold bury the counter off. You draw two cards, but only ever lose one life. This is the most, I think it's really good. This is by far the, the most conservative use case of the one ring I've ever heard. <laughs> you like carefully take the one burden counter off. You're like, all right, I'm going to use the one ring very, very carefully. <laughs> look, you, no. look, you every turn you lose one, draw two. That's a great rate. Yeah. Yeah. Let's be honest, dude. If you could tap this to draw five, lose five. And you, I had this in a blue red spells deck, actually, where like I had a bunch of fling effects and a bunch of pingers. I was like, oh, yeah, d- d- deal me six. <laughs> I don't <laughs> oh, care. Don't get me wrong. I love drawing cards. I would absolutely do that if it was a one off. But if it was if it if, if, if this just said tap 
lose five life, draw five cards, lose five life for the, every turn for the rest of the game. I probably still would not do that unless I was like really <laughs> back against the wall need to figure. Cause I mean, that's a quarter of your life. Well, that, that's the cool thing though. It doesn't lose you the life until your next upkeep. Actually, a note about that. I had an that's opponent true. activate this in response to that upkeep trigger to attempt to find the fling to, um, they were at like six. They had it at four counters. They tapped it to put another burden counter on it to try to find the fling. Uh, they didn't find it. Oh, no, no, actually, I'm sorry, they did. They found the exile effect. Uh, they exiled it, but then they still took five damage. Yeah. So it checked and saw that there was five burden counters at the time um, the, of the, the, when the it trigger left. was on the stack. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess, yeah, when it left. Just, right? yeah. Uh, yeah. So just a small note about that. Um, you know, be careful with the one ring. <laughs> Well, that about does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Do check out the Discord if you haven't already. Again, it's the best place to go to chat with us and the rest of the Traficionado community. We'd love to have you over there. The link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. Thanks, folks. We'll catch you next week. All right. Something for the, the listener that I'm curious about. How do you sort your collection? For those that have, you know, physical collections of magic cards, as most magic players tend to accrue cards over <laughs> months and years, uh, how do you all sort them? I'm actually going to be going through and one of my uh, items to do this summer is maybe I'll just do it today. Actually, I'm not doing anything else. Maybe I'll go through and uh, what I like to do every once in a while, sort my entire collection, uh, just kind of organize stuff, get all the cards that I've had laying around in different spots. I usually make a sell pile of things that have kind of, you know, gained some value over the last year or two. But with Commander nowadays, um, sometimes funny commons, uncommons, rares from years ago have shot up in price for no other reason than someone printed a Commander that works really well with it. So I'll have to see if I've got any of those laying around. Uh, and also just, you know, go and dump a bunch of the $1 rares that I had that are now like $3 rares and, uh, you know, hopefully turn a nice little profit off of cards that I've just had laying around gathering dust. So uh, honestly, kind of curious how other people do it because right now I just have a bunch of these uh, like bundle boxes. Uh, I found those to be pretty good, but um, if people have other recommendations out there, I'm all ears. I've got a, a pretty robust collection sorting system. So here's what I do. I go to drafts. I go to pre-releases. That's about the only way I buy cards. Every so often, if I'm building a deck, I will buy uh, singles to build like an EDH deck or something. But obviously, if you're drafting a lot, you are collecting a lot of random commons and uncommons. I give all those to Ben and then I take <laughs> and all the rares and the mythics and um, I put those in binders and I separate them out. I have one binder that's cards that are $5 and below, I believe. And then one binder that's $5 and above. Um, and then I just every so often have to move cards from one binder to the next because the, their prices change. Um, that said, I don't really have much of a collection. I <laughs> used to have a huge collection. I gave all of them to Ben. So, <laughs> <laughs> a significant chunk of your sorting method is uh, make someone else do it. Outsourcing, yeah. <laughs>